Hello, I'm John Steele of Cafe Direct, and this is the Building Better Business podcast, a podcast that examines how business can and needs to be more than just making money. Unraveling how we create new business models to better serve our communities and the environment. This really is the future of how we'll do business and how we can all play a part. To celebrate the launch of our new podcast, the first 50 subscribers who review the podcast on Apple Podcasts or followers on Spotify will receive a £10 voucher to spend on delicious speciality coffee from Cafe Direct's London Fields Roastery. Just send photos of your subscription and review to podcast at cafedirect.co.uk by midnight on the 21st of November 2021. Our guest today is Oxfam GB CEO Danny Shrikandaraja. Oxfam is one of Cafe Direct's founders and is still involved in various ways, including selling Cafe Direct coffee in all its wonderful shops across the UK. Like Cafe Direct, Oxfam sees enterprise as a hugely powerful tool in tackling poverty, improving lives and livelihoods where it's needed most. Danny notes how current levels of global consumerism are deeply unsustainable and that business as usual must change, and urgently, in order for the resources that we have to be shared more fairly and if we're all to live safely within our planet's boundaries. Here Danny explained the direct link between climate action and tackling poverty and hunger, both of which are on the rise as inequality increases in countries around the world. It's important that we probably start at the beginning because um, you know, 30 years ago, Oxfam had the foresight to to found Cafe Direct, and you know, for Oxfam Tradecraft Twin and Equal Exchange to connect directly with smallholder farmers and then make it into a business is such a profound thing to do. Talk to us a little bit about how much that mattered in terms of the way the business started. To me personally, it matters a huge amount because. One of the things I've really enjoyed about working at Oxfam is it's we're almost 80 years old and, you know, in different areas, it feels like this organization has been at the cutting edge, at the vanguard of of progressive social change or economic change. And the relationship with others that led to the creation of Cafe Direct, I think, is probably one of the highlights of Oxfam's amazing 80-year history. And our journey on fair trade started really early in our history. I think it was in the late 1950s. The then CEO of Oxfam was in Hong Kong in a refugee camp and saw some refugees making and selling some handicrafts. And he emptied his suitcase, packed it full of, of handicrafts and brought it back to the UK to sell in Oxfam charity shops. And that, you know, in our folklore, that's the beginning of our experience with, with fair trade. And so not surprisingly, a few decades later, you know, this involvement with, with co-creating Cafe Direct sort of lent into that. And I think Everyone at Oxfam is really proud to have been involved. And particularly because what I think Cafe Direct shows is, amongst other things, is the fact that, you know, you can be a, a PLC with a distributed shareholders, with a, you know, with a clear core social mission and still do well. It's amazing that that experiment that began 30 odd years ago is still going strong and showing and leading the way, I hope, in, you know, one way to do social good in in today's world it's important but it's just so exciting you know 30 years ago 1991 that there was the the vision to say business can be done differently and then i mean it's well before my time but to have then come together in a very authentic way and create a business that's now you know 
a, a vibrant brand that is, as you say, doing well, but doing things in the right way with the right engagement of producers and, you know, and it's great to have Oxfam as a founder still part of that wonderful journey, both from the point of view of involved in our governance and being part of the organization, but also as a you know wonderful showroom for the brand. I mean, I, I'm always delighted to go and see Cafe Direct in um, your wonderful shops. We're proud to stock Cafe Direct, I think, in almost all of our, we have 600 odd shops or nearly 600 shops around the UK. And it's great to do that. And also, you know, I, you know, I went back to the handicraft story, now, there's also been a sort of quiet revolution happening in fair trade as far as I can see, which is that it's no longer about these sort of, you know, handmade things that are sort of, you know, nice to have, but you, you know, you feel good about buying them, but they're not particularly useful. Whereas today, if I go through the sort of stock that we're, we're stocking in, in Oxfam shops, it's really nice stuff. It's tasty coffee. It's lovely chocolate. It's stuff you really want to buy and it's as, as good, if not better, than what's available in a commercial market. So I think the fair trade journey itself has also come a long way. What do you think needs to happen for more businesses to move to this kind of model, for them to really make a shift fast enough for us? Because we are under time pressure, from a, in my view, from a, both a social and environmental perspective. Yeah, look, that point about the urgency is, is spot on, I think, because you can see the wheels are slowly turning in the core parts of the corporate world, but they're not turning quickly enough. And I think the key will be obviously much greater consumer pressure. Uh, and it's good to see gr much greater awareness, particularly around environmental impact these days, much stronger regulatory action. I don't want to sort of dwell too much on the history, but one of the reasons I really liked the Cafe Direct experience from a sort of Oxfam point of view is in some ways we were also ahead of the game, right? Because yeah. If you read the latest UK corporate governance code, which was, I think, revised in 2018, it says it's about promoting long-term sustainable success of a company, generating values for shareholders and contributing to wider society. You know, I don't know what the exact words were in the Cafe Direct mission in 1991, but I suspect they're very similar. And in some ways, it's, it was a shame that it took two and a half decades for the wider corporate governance code to catch up to that, and an even greater shame that we haven't yet worked out how we really impose that and, and get tangible difference in how businesses behave. And, you know, I, I do think that there's some progress, but it, as you said earlier, it just needs to be quicker to, to make sure that all entities in society, including businesses, are doing what they need to do to promote a sort of genuine, sustainable success, if you will, uh, you know, a triple bottom line, whichever way you want to look at it. It's always fascinating to think about the, the journey and how to influence everybody. And you can end up preaching and you can end up really having the wrong tone of voice because you care so much, but you feel frustrated by the way things aren't, aren't changing. I mean, what would be a couple of kind of top tips on how to help bring people on the journey? I think I can recall, you know, some of the, the great work you've done with things like looking at companies and looking at the behind the barcodes and things like that. What would you think two or three of the, the best things we could do to really help accelerate change and, and make it more lasting? A good place to start would be to just remind people that businesses that are taking ESG or triple bottom line or sustainability seriously are doing really well. I saw my pension statement the other day and, you know, was chuffed to see that the, the sort of ethical fund that I'm investing in is outperforming almost all of the other alternative funds that my pension could be invested in. That's fantastic. 
that you know it shows that those of us who are making ethical choices can do better and you know businesses i hope are learning that lesson very quickly that this isn't about sort of going against the grain or, or you know trying to have less success in the long term it's is about you know leaning in i think secondly transparency is key and all of those things that oxfam and others have done around you know naming and faming or naming and shaming have all contributed to that greater awareness of the true impacts of our consumption or our our behavior especially those of us who live in the west and you know if i take something like behind the barcodes which is our attempt to look at the products we consume in in supermarkets and the human rights workers rights gender equality in their supply chain that was really important to help consumers and the public understand uh, what's happening in terms of you know the the products they're consuming but also importantly getting even the supermarket businesses to understand what more they needed to do and you know even in my two and a half years time here i've had some really fascinating conversations with the heads of british supermarkets about what more they could be doing are planning to do around improving their practice and and really living up to sort of their claims or their aspirations on sustainability so i think there's a sort of transparency element and and especially around making it relatively simple and easy to understand so people can change their own consumer behavior and and vote with their their wallet so i think that's that's important and third is around the sort of coming back to the urgency i think which is the global economy run in the sort of extractive way that we've seen in the last few decades especially is deeply unsustainable I think when you look at what's happening on climate change and the stark stark evidence we're seeing about climate breakdown and and the urgency of climate action I hope it's abundantly clear that we can't you know business as usual just cannot go on but also on on something like poverty you know we are there are more people in need of humanitarian assistance today than at any time since the second world war some of the amazing progress the hard fought wins we've had on on reducing poverty in recent decades are being reversed by the shocks of the covid-19 pandemic we're sort of going backwards in that journey of of creating a more equitable world and that's deeply problematic because it's unsustainable you know again if you look at the pandemic i think it's shown amongst other things very clearly that we're all in this together that no one is safe until everyone is safe and i think when you look at global supply chains and a highly globalized economy i think we have to also just recognize the urgency that we have to level the playing field pretty quickly in order for us to have a sort of for economic sustainability if you will so there's a sort of environmental angle and an economic and social angle that i hope is also very urgent and business leaders grasp that uh, very quickly as an optimist i you know the the pandemic it got a huge amount of tragedy and and i've also in some ways the way humanity has responded has had some real positivity about it but uh, as you say i think it's important to recognize that humanity is in it all together it, it isn't that one country can you know get highly vaccinated and then go oh we're okay and the rest aren't i mean a that's not going to work and b that's hugely troubling as a thought really oxfam is proudly supporting the people's vaccine campaign can you just describe a little bit about what that is and and why you're supporting that yeah look to your point that uh the pandemic has reminded us that we all need to respond together to beat the pandemic or to manage it at least and you know one of the tragedies we've seen in the last 18 months is that 
there has been a vaccine apartheid, as some people call it. And those of us lucky enough to live in rich countries are being vaccinated at amazing rates. And thanks to the you know pharmaceutical companies who've developed these vaccines, to our NHS and volunteers and a whole range of things that have contributed to that. But less than 2% of people in some of the poorest parts of the world are, are being vaccinated. And worse still, their chances of having a cheap or accessible vaccine anytime in the future are, are low. And it's because the, the intellectual property that's be, that sits behind some of these new vaccines is highly protected. It's owned by a few big pharmaceutical companies who've made a huge amount of money in the last 18 months. And worst of all, most of those new vaccines that are on the market were actually publicly funded. You know, if you take the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, we think something like 90 odd percent of the funding in its of its development was paid for by the taxpayers. And yet very few of these companies have done very much to share that technology, to really boost global distribution. And so the People's Vaccine Alliance is a, is a group of a really diverse group of organizations that are saying that we really need a people's vaccine, one that is fairly and cheaply and quickly distributed around the world so that we don't have situations like we've seen in recent months where the virus rips through a country like India, increasing the risk of mutation, increasing the risk that it's re-imported in a new variant back to countries where, the, where which might have been vaccinated, but where the vaccines are no longer as effective. And so this idea that we can somehow sort of compete our way through the pandemic by protecting our own and putting up our fortress just is not, it's not going to work. And the people's vaccine is one key element to that. But I think I am also an optimist like you. And I think that there are some other emerging lessons from this pandemic that those of us who care about equity or sustainability should also be very conscious of. Because, you know, I think there's, for example, on intellectual property rights, could this be a moment where we can start to redraw that balance between private profit and public good on these key global assets um, that will help society? Or is this a moment to really think about social protection? You know, it's if we really are a civilized species, shouldn't we be doing more to make sure that every one of us has the basic wherewithal, the basic necessities to live a a reasonable life. And that might mean some cash, it might mean some medicines, it might mean some housing. And it, to me, it's a tragedy that here we are in the early 21st century in a world of plenty where people are still dying and hunger is on the rise, famine is on the rise. And these are all political preventable challenges. And perhaps, just perhaps, the pandemic will be the trigger for a reset on some of that and that we see a, a much more just recovery so that we build a, a fundamentally different global system uh, when it comes to um, sort of social protection. One of the things that we're touching on really is it, it's that inequality in many kind of different ways across the world that is increasingly clearly a fundamental issue in terms of fighting climate change as well. I think it goes so much beyond just people saying, oh, you know, there are people who are financially better off than people who are, are not. The sustainable development goals and the need really to make quite significant and comprehensive change across a number of, of metrics. I mean, how do you see the role in fighting poverty really connecting with that broader agenda? The really important thing to recognise around climate change is the equity impacts around the world. You know, for me, one of the tragedies of the situation we find ourselves in is that the the people who are already being most affected by climate breakdown 
had almost nothing to do with causing climate change. You know, the richest 10% of us on the planet are responsible for more than half of all carbon dioxide emissions. Oxfam calculated that 20 million people a year over the last decade were forced to move by extreme weather events that were driven by climate breakdown. So these are the wildfires, the tropical storms, the hurricanes, the cyclones, and the vast majority of those people live in, in poorer parts of the world. And so it's important that we take dramatic, urgent action to reduce emissions, to promote adaptation and mitigation, but also be aware of the equity implications of what we're doing. And you know, one of the things we're worried about at the moment is around the sort of net zero pledges that many progressive companies and governments are making. They're a really important part of climate action. You know, let's be clear about that. But one of our concerns is if you start to aggregate the promises being made by companies and, and governments, we get to some implausible, ludicrous amounts of resource needed. I mean, take land, you know, a lot of net zero targets, if you strip away unproven technologies, are relying on afforestation, planting new trees that will be carbon sinks that will take the carbon we're still going to be pumping into the into the air out. And we just did a calculation recently where if you total the likely uh, net zero pledged requirements for land, we need 1.6 billion extra hectares of land. That's three times the size of India, the total of all arable land in use today. It's ludicrous. It's impossible that we're going to find that much land. And even if we come close to finding that much land, we're going to have dramatic negative impacts on food security. You know, we've already seen food prices rise by 40% around the world in the last 12 months. And the pressure being caused by new sort of carbon sink plantations of acacia uh, is going to be huge on land that's going to be needed to produce the food that people need. And so this interaction between climate action and poverty and hunger is really important. And we need to pay careful attention to it now. And, I, you know, again, I think we have answers out there. There are models of, you know, agroforestry where you can have forests as well as, you know, food production happening together. Uh, there are some amazing examples out around the world where you can get the best of both worlds. We just need to make sure that the action we take is not having these unintended consequences around poverty and food security. It's not just about kind of fighting poverty, but it is ultimately, to me, it's about inequality. And, you know, over the, the 30 years that Cafe Directors has been around, which is about the same kind of time as I've been working, it's really struck me that the difference between the, the haves and the have-nots has just exploded. And I sometimes, with my children, work out that, you know, a footballer or a, you know, global CEO was to give a percentage of their income to others you know, they could still be incredibly wealthy, but they could change the lives of thousands and thousands of people. How, how does Oxfam see that, that inequality kind of situation? We are deeply worried about uh, an inequality crisis that we seem to be sleepwalking into and that the pandemic has just accelerated. You know, if the world were a country, it would be the most unequal country in the world, if that makes sense. That, you know, we have such inequity between peoples around the, the around our planet and it's deeply unfair it's unjust and in some ways it's unnecessary and unsustainable as well and that's why we often talk about you know people might think why is oxfam an organization that's been about famine and poverty talking about inequality and that's because our diagnosis of the problem is that it's the allocation of resources in today's world that's driving poverty and unless we address that sort of misallocation we won't really make a sustainable impact on reducing poverty. And 
you know, we used we I hope people have seen some of the work we've done over the last decade to show the sort of eye-watering levels of inequality that you know that we are seeing in the world. That a, a handful of rich people, mostly men, own more wealth than half of the world's population, and some of that has really got worse over the pandemic. You know, we we did this calculation that if Jeff Bezos paid a hundred thousand dollars to each of his hundreds of thousands of staff at an Amazon across the world, he'd still be richer than he was at the start of the pandemic because many of the world's richest people have had huge dividends because of the pandemic. And even some of our corporations, I think something like the eight, um, the the biggest supermarkets around the, the US and the UK had a massive increase in their in their profits and ended up paying huge dividends to their shareholders, a hundred odd percent increase in dividend payouts just at the same time that people in their supply chains were not being given anything because contracts were being cancelled and they didn't have social protection to fall back on. Their governments couldn't afford to produce furlough schemes and they lived, you know, they they were, that's why we're seeing increasing levels of, of hunger around the world. And so I think we really do have to face up to inequality in our, our society and have a, a, a constructive grown-up conversation about what is a morally acceptable level of inequality, again, that we as a civilized species will put up with. And I'm not saying it's zero, but it can't be this. This is not sustainable and this is wrong. And the worst of all, we could fix it relatively easy with a you know a few few tweaks to how how taxes work, how redistribution works. And you know, and there are others calling for it as well. You know, Oxfam supports uh, or is part of a, a wider group that's called Patriotic Millionaires. And this is a group of millionaires and billionaires who themselves are saying that we need higher taxes on rich people because it's not good enough to allow, you know, some people to accumulate huge amounts of wealth and then sort of rely on their philanthropy to and reduce poverty or, or achieve other social goods. And so, you know, the, the answers, the solutions are within grasp and relatively simple. And yet I don't think we're, we've faced in to the, to the challenge quite enough. It's good to hear that that dialogue is going on, but it is, as you're suggesting there, it's about facing in and taking significant action, which will make a much more profound difference. You're not asking everybody to give up their money and hand it out, but my goodness, you can make a huge difference to the world and um, some of the, the therefore social and environmental issues that if we do not fix and fix fast, people with lots of money will not find that they are immune to the changes that are going on. I'd love to just talk a little bit about and hear a little bit about Oxfam and how you're getting on because during the pandemic, you know, it's affected all of us in different ways, mentally, physically, economically, and so on. And I found it heartbreaking, you know, because for Oxfam, you've got lots of quite small stores with incredible volunteers. Lots of those are, you know, older people and it all turned upside down effectively. How have you navigated through it from a, a kind of volunteer and retail point of view in the UK? There is no denying that it's been, you know, a really rocky 18 months, probably like all of us, all of our families, all of our organisations. I mean, for Oxfam, it was a, it was doubly bad because on the one hand, we had a dramatic increase in need around the world for all the reasons I've just talked about, while at the same time, our ability to raise the resources to deliver our programmes was really compromised by the, by the pandemic. And, you know, we, as I said, have 600 shops around the country that were, have been closed for or seven of the last 12 months of the financial year. And that meant we just didn't, 
generate the sort of contributions that would fund fund our work. But you know, I spent a lot of time in the last few weeks with our retail teams, and as you say, we've got you know twenty thousand volunteers who who help us run our shops, and it's been really inspiring because that to me is you know comes back to this sort of you know what the triple bottom line really means because in our shops we are generating this really important um, profit if you will that goes to funding our work we're also collecting in the, in at Oxfam we collect something like 12 13000 tons of used clothing and none of that goes to landfill and we we sell some of it we recycle and use use it for other purposes um, and so we're part i hope of this sort of revolution around sustainable consumption that's really important and I hope we're also nurturing community you know the idea that we have people of all ages all backgrounds come to volunteer at Oxfam shops and it's lovely to see community at work that people uh, are come, I met a volunteer the other day who said she's you know retired and lonely at home so she comes to Oxfam shop to meet people and she loves it I meet young people who are on Duke of Edinburgh schemes who want to you know learn new skills and get into retail and this is a fantastic way of, of learning those skills so the sort of shops are a lovely manifestation of those things and coming right back to where we started one of those fabulous things about Oxfam, I think, is that it's not, you know, it is a charity. It's one of the biggest charities in the world. But on the other hand, if you sort of scratch the surface, you see enterprise, you know, whether that's the shops we've been running since 1948 or our experiments, if I can call it that, in fair trade through initiatives like Cafe Direct or this new enterprise development program that I was talking about where we're trying to raise 50 million pounds of capital to go into women's uh, economic empowerment around the world. You know, there we look less like a charity and more like a B Corp or a social enterprise. And I love living in that space because that's the future, right? That's why, you know, I hope that in 10, 20 years time, none of us will be able to recognize these sort of, you know, shareholder first, short term first, greedy capitalist, cowboy capitalist sort of model, because that just won't exist. It'll either be regulated out or consumers will have punished organizations that, that behave like that. And more and more of, of, of entities in society will have moved beyond that extractive model of capitalism and really lent into deep sustainability, whether that's environmental or ethical. Um, uh, social dimensions and that's the future and I love the fact that you know we've been part of your story and you've been part of our story in trying to build that future. It's really really energizing to think about the way that's been going on for quite a long time but also I think the momentum is is there. My daughter had this amazing retail experience where she went to your large store your experiment in Oxford and you know to have 16 17 year old children who want to go to Oxfam to get their clothing. It's really important that you're seeing a generation enjoying that. I don't know whether you think of yourselves as the first generation of fair trade, but you know, a lot of those sort of commodity initiatives around tea or coffee or chocolate were really important. Uh, and the journey's no, by no means complete. But if we move to something like fashion, you know, I think the fashion industry generates more carbon than transport, um, uh, you know, all forms of transport put together. It, it's something ludicrous like that. And we are, you know, we are addicted in some parts of the world to fast fashion. It's it's bad for the environment. It's bad for the garment workers who do deeply exploitative jobs. And we can change that. And if it's cool to wear secondhand, which I, you know, we, we've been running a campaign called Secondhand September, and we have, have a pop-up shop in Selfridges, and we have 
designers who are you know up um, upcycling wed used wedding dresses it is now seriously cool let's hope that that's the sort of current generation's fundamental shift around how we consume that will also you know improve our sustainability but also importantly improve the lives and livelihoods of people who have been you know at the ends of these really extractive exploitative supply chains that we need to sort of improve very urgently the last thing you touched on there Danny for us you know as a a business that's centered around smallholder farmers and their their livelihoods and their communities and and their landscapes in which they operate it can make for such a better um community when you get a smallholder farmer who you know I don't know is growing co coffee as their main crop but then starts to you know do fish farming and starts to create vegetable gardens and starts to create a kind of entrepreneurial and very positive use of a landscape adjacent to a rainforest it, it can become kind of really synergistic there's so much we can do that's really positive not only for the environment but actually for the way people live their lives and for us at cafe direct smallholder farmers which are hugely underrepresented and have a you know very um kind of disparate voice I think they they can really help us and we can help work together and uh, mitigate climate change. As you guys have shown for all these years, if you're serious about it, you can make an an amazing difference. And you know, one of our priorities at Oxfam at the moment is what we call valuing women's work. Our diagnosis of some of the challenges we see in the world are that at their heart is that we have chronically undervalued women's work whether it's paid or unpaid care and again the pandemic is a reminder of how important care is to our economies to our societies and as part of our interventions on that where we're trying to lean in to women's economic development or economic empowerment and you know about to raise um, we hope 50 million pounds of new capital to go into investing in small businesses or small and medium enterprises around the world in some of the countries we work in that are women owned or women led that will do what you said which is achieve economic payoffs in terms of income and and therefore supporting the livelihoods tackle you know climate change by being clear about the sort of you know sustainability goals that underpin them and also challenge gender norms and make you know really take a step forward in terms of gender equity and i think that that's ultimately i ho i hope what will happen that more more and more business leaders when they think about what they want to do especially you know people in startups or you know people with new ideas i hope that they're thinking in that way that they're saying okay look i want to make money but i also want to make sure that i have these other impacts that you know i i did an economics degree and it was you know many years ago and we used to sort of you know constantly criticize the fact that modern capitalism is chronically bad at counting externalities that you know the the damage you're doing to the planet just is never never features in the balance sheet the inspiring thing is a lot of you know young entrepreneurs i meet especially in the global south are sort of actively putting those positive externalities into their frame they're saying look i want to do this but i really want to challenge gender norms in my society as well and that to me is part of what's driving me it's my passion as well it's a co-passion if you will and i think that you know the more that we can start to inculcate that the better and the more rapid that change will be that we were talking about earlier yeah no it's incredibly refreshing isn't it to communicate and have dialogue with young entrepreneurs or or young students who are wanting to do things differently and they don't have some of the paradigms that other generations have there is definitely momentum in terms of setting up social enterprises and setting up small businesses that have 
a, a greater purpose. And, you know, as, as somebody who works in that kind of organization, it is the most rewarding thing you can have. At Cafe Direct, we have 30 people who are, are totally driven by improving the lives of smallholder farmers and setting out the mission that we have. The other thing we often forget is the social value from that broad, more broadly. You know, I often use or quote that stat that, you know, Britain's top five cooperatives pay more tax than Amazon, Facebook, Apple, eBay and Starbucks combined. And people go, what? And you think, well, that's, you know, that's the point, right? So those people who are working in, in these sort of ethical businesses or ethical formations are doing all of those things, but they're also adding to wider social goods or public goods by, for example, paying tax that then allows us to have public services and address things like climate change. And it's that virtual cycle that we just can't take our eye off. What a fascinating chat with Danny there. A huge thanks to you, Danny, for being our guest today. A small plea from me now, just to say that if you're enjoying the podcast, please do rate and subscribe on Apple or Spotify or whatever platform you use, as it does make a huge difference. Thank you. Bye for now. I'm a, I'm a